Hey guys, and welcome to the Family Business Indaba podcast. We are the voice of African family business, promoting generational wealth and generational legacies. And my name is Susan Tendi. And I am Nika Amani. And we're going to be taking you through the journey of African family business. Hi, everybody, and welcome to our, our final session for today at the Ukama Family Business Conference. We're joined by Josh Barron, who will be speaking on why the 21st century will belong to family businesses. So welcome, Josh. Thank you so much for uh, for having me. And uh, being last, I'll, I'll try to keep... Uh, Keep the presentation and conversation going. So I'll uh, I'll share some of the work that I've been doing on competitive advantage, and then would welcome uh, questions and comments that you have along the way. And um, I'll just preface this by saying that this is work that I've been doing more broadly uh, for family businesses around the world, uh, not specific to Africa, but would really welcome any comments, uh, observations that, that any of you have about the ways in which what I'll talk about applies or, or doesn't apply or is different um, in some of the um, companies that you all are, are part of. So let me just share my screen and start out by actually talking about a non-family business and really highlighting some of the challenges of being a public company in today's environment. So I want to Talk about Tesla, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with, a uh, really innovative company that's leading the charge in electric vehicles. Um, the founder, Elon Musk, is quite a character, uh, both in terms of uh, his business as well as some of his other pronouncements. And he actually got himself into a bit of trouble uh, with a statement that, that he made a couple of years ago um, where he talked about how difficult it was to be a public company and in some ways the frustrating aspects of it. Um, he actually, this is part of a quote he he provided uh, where he said it's a, a major distraction for everyone working at Tesla, that being public subjects uh, the company to quarterly earnings cycle, and they have to make decisions that are not necessarily right for the long term. Um, and he believes that the company is at its best when they're focused on executing as opposed to focusing on trying to hit the quarterly earnings targets and meet the expectations of Wall Street. And, and Elon Musk actually floated the idea on Twitter of whether or not he should take Tesla private, which uh, ran him afoul of some some uh, regulatory rules and, and, and the like. So, but that's a, it's an, it was an interesting point because he's not the only one um, who's leading a public company, especially one that's trying to be, be innovative, um, that's expressed some frustration about the challenges of being a public company and answering uh, to shareholders and meeting the quarterly earnings targets. Um, this is from a few years ago, but actually when Fortune asked the 500 CEOs that are part of their Fortune 500 rankings, um, how many of you think it would be easier to manage your business if it were a private company as opposed to a public company? Um, almost 90% said it was. And the reasons why that they said basically is that as, the te as technology changes, um, as so much disruption is happening, it really requires a long-term approach uh, to investing. And at the same time, public shareholders are demanding short-term results. And if they don't hit their quarterly earnings targets, 
um, then they'll hear about it and, and potentially lose their jobs. And so public company CEOs are really caught in the crosshair. So there's something there's something really interesting happening uh, right now with with public companies and some of the challenges that they're facing. And how do we understand what's going on? Um, and to do that, we actually have to turn to an area that I feel has been relatively underexplored. Um, I've been uh, working in the field, in and around the field of strategy for most of my career. Uh, I started out at Bain & Company. I worked in the US and South Africa and Australia. Um, I switched and worked for a spinoff of Bain called Bridgespan um, that focuses on, on doing strategy for large foundations, you know, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Hewlett and Pack Foundations among them, um, large nonprofit organizations. Um, I, you know, for the last 12, 13 years, I've been working with family businesses on a variety of topics, including helping them to think about some of the long-term strategy issues that, that they're facing. Um, I also teach at a, at Columbia Business School, so sort of have some lens there. And one of the things I can tell you for sure from my experience is that depending on what type of company you have, whether it's a public company owned by a private equity firm, a private business, a family business, um, a nonprofit organization, the way that you approach strategy is going to be very different. But I don't think we talk so much about the way in which ownership actually affects competitive advantage. And so that's a topic that I've been really focused on trying to learn about and explore and actually bring some of those lessons to family businesses for about the last three or four years. And so how do we, how can ownership potentially affect the ability of a business to compete? Um, well, if you ask a strat, you know, if you ask 10 strategists, what does, what does strategy mean? You'll get 10 different responses, but let me give you mine. Um, I think strategy is ultimately about aligning means with ends, about making sure that you're allocating the resources that you have um, to accomplish your goals. And then ultimately, as a business, if you don't create some form of competitive advantage, you won't last for very long. So strategy is about how do you do that? How do you take your scarce resources, whatever they are, and try to create an advantage over the other companies that you're competing with in your in whatever sector that you're in? So if we break that down into the two pieces, you know, if we basically say it's about resource allocation, well, then either ownership could affect strategy by affecting the capital, the resources you have available, um, or it could affect the way that you make decisions, the quality of your allocation, right? So it, both of those pieces, now we've break them down one more level, we can think about capital in its three main types of forms. There's human capital, talent, there's financial capital, which is you know investment, and then there's social capital. What's your reputation? How can you use that as an advantage in the marketplace? And if we take decision making, we can actually break that down into a couple pieces. One is more the operational or management side. How do we run the business on a day to day basis? And then the other is the governance side. And here what I mean by governance is that every business has some form of ownership, whether it's a family or a public market or, you know, the or a government or whatever. How do you intersect or connect the owners, the ultimate owners of that business to the managers? That's what ultimately governance is is about okay so those are five different types of, of lenses or ways that ownership could affect um could affect competitive advantage and i believe actually in across all five and I'll, I'll kind of go through them one by one we'll talk about the ways in which uh, family ownership in particular can affect both the access to these three different types of resources 
as well as the way in which these two different types of decisions are made. And the important point here and why I start with the public company is that as broader trends in the marketplace, as technology changes, as economies change, um, all the things that are happening around us, as those things affect what it takes to be successful in any business, then we would expect that different ownership models, because they're better at creating different types of resources or making different types of decisions, will become more or less able to compete. And that's really the, the overall message of, of, of the work that I've done and, and my belief is that there was a period of time, really the last century, the 20th century, when the things that public companies are exceptional at, in particular, you know, getting access to lots and lots of money, um, both from debt and equity holders, um, that's kind of what public, going public is all about, that was really critical to a period of time of being successful. And the things that family businesses are really good at in a lot in many economies and many parts of the economy over that period were not as were not as critical to success. And basically, the argument that I would say is that that has flipped in the 21st century. And, and, and I think going forward, the things that family businesses are relatively or comparatively good at are becoming more and more important to success in competing as a company. The things that family businesses are weak at or potentially weak at um, are less important. And that's why, you know, kind of going back to the headline of why it is that I believe that this this century can and I hope I hope does actually belong to to family businesses. So let's actually go through and we'll talk about each of these five different levers. And for each one, I'll give you some sense as to the evolution of how competitive advantage has changed. I'll talk about how family businesses have the potential to build an advantage. What's the, what is that, what is the innate or, or sort of thing about family businesses that makes them better able to exercise or do well in that area? And then I'll give you some examples of practical things that family businesses can do to activate that advantage. Because if you can think about it, it's latent, it's there. But if you don't work on it um, and develop it and sustain it over time, it will dissipate. Okay, so the first, let's talk about talent. So human capital first. And here, the evolution has been, you know, in the 20th century in particular, there was the, the priority was basically how do you build these massive companies? And you look at the largest companies back around, you know, the mid, midpoint of the 20th century, they were enormous. You know, they were these huge factories, um, these, you know, companies that were global and had employees all over the world. And the challenge was really how do you manage this sort of massive employees? How do you sustain them over a period of time? Um, and, and that was something that public companies were really good at. They had the resources to do that. They had the, you know, the large training and development programs and all those kinds of things. I think that that has fundamentally shifted to where more important than being able to just have the quantity of employees, it's more becoming about how do you attract and retain the right quality. And to do that, increasingly what you need is not the ability to, to, uh, to manage a massive pool of employees in most cases, it's ability to appeal to people's desires uh, to, to do something that's more than just a job. And I call that a higher calling, right? So the strategic imperative that all businesses are facing is about inspiration. How do you make people uh, understand the intrinsic value of working for your company? And there's some good research that points to the importance of inspiration 
um, to attracting and retaining the best talent, um, as well as pointing to the impact that, um, that firms or companies with higher employee satisfaction are doing better. Um, it's such, become such a critical component of success. Well, this is something I think that family, family owners, family businesses can be quite outstanding at. Family businesses tend to think about investing people uh, over the long term. The employee retention rates of family businesses are quite high. Um, when people talk about companies as having values and the importance of values to wanting to work in a business, this is right, right down the center of what family businesses are good at. Um, you know, the, the values actually, our values come from our families not from companies and family businesses are able to imbue those values, their values into companies and pass those values down from one generation to the next. There's also a very strong loyalty effect that comes working with the owners of businesses. When I talk to family businesses and their employees about why they like working there, you know, you, okay, you can't get stock options if you went to, as, as if you could go work for a tech startup. Why do you work in a family business? Well, I really like working for the owners. I really feel like I can make a difference. Like I'm connected to this business because I know the people that own it. And lastly, the, an advantage that family businesses have is the ability to build your own talent pool. You don't have to just rely on you know, hiring externally. You have the ability to train and develop people from a relatively young age, send them to some of the best schools, get the best learning opportunities you can really create your own pool to be successful. And just I'll, I'll share for each of these some of the, the data that I found um, and some examples. So, you know, here family firms scored significantly higher on culture, worker motivation and leadership. There's some pretty good, you know, pretty good data support that this is something family businesses are good at. Um, and this, again, is a, this is a, a quote from an actual family business leader. He said the the beauty of a family business is that you can invest in your employees and take a long term view of employee retention. This is a built-in advantage that public companies can never have. Our employee retention, which this company measures very carefully, so blows away that of our competitors. So this is something that family, the ability to attract and retain and motivate, inspire people is something that family businesses can be quite good at. Well, how do you do that? How do you activate that advantage? First of all, you have to make sure that you're paying attention to that, that sense of purpose and really instilling that culture uh, making sure why are you in business and making sure that, that employees understand that sort of motivation. Um, pay attention, measure employee retention and engagement. Um, there's some good tools to do that. Um, invest in building your own leadership pipeline. It's, you know, it's always, it's always more, less risky from a culture standpoint to promote someone from within um, than it is to hire someone external. And But to do that, you actually have to develop your own leadership pipeline because the worst thing that you want is to put someone that's not qualified in to take a senior role. I oftentimes hear that, well, we can't recruit great people because we can't you know, provide ownership to them uh, for family businesses that aren't willing to do that. There are lots of ways to provide phantom stock and other things that mimic ownership without handing over actual control. Um, make sure you play to your strengths when you're hiring non-family employees. It's not about um, the upside, the stock options, the you know, those kinds of experience. It's more about you're going to come work for a business that has values that's going to be invested to you for the long time, for the long term. And then lastly, make sure you're actually building that family talent machine. Um, be careful about, you know, nepotism in the sense of hiring people that are part of your family is, is to be expected, but it can't be an unqualified level of nepotism. 
people, non-family employees will will run away if they find that if they believe that family members who are unqualified are finding their way to senior positions. So make sure you're really investing in creating strong family employees. So that's the first one. Let's talk about the second advantage, which is about financial capital. And as I said, in this era before where there was so much of a focus on getting to scale, economies of scale, building these large companies, the advantage, the reason why public companies were invented and the reason why they came to such prominence was because they were able to get access to other people's money. These days, if you've, there has never been an easier time to get access to capital for a great idea. If you've got a great idea, there are places to go and find it. And so again, kind of similar to employees, it's less about the quantity of capital and more about the quality of it, what I call committed capital. The imperative that all businesses are facing is to build an equity base that is dedicated to long-term results, not short-term results. And I found this fascinating when I came across it. There was, a, there was a, a study done of public company CFOs, and they were asked, how many of you would destroy value, take an action that you knew would destroy economic value in order to achieve quarterly earnings targets? And almost 80% of them said yes. And I bet the other 20% are probably looking for a job because the pressure to hit your quarterly earnings targets as a public public company is so extreme. However, there is so much value in being able to take a long-term mindset. And some research from McKinsey talks about the way in which having that allows companies that, that they do have it to outperform their peers on almost every financial measure that matters. So again, this is something that family businesses can be so, so good at, um, is having this sort of, you know, access to capital allows you to look long-term. Um, first of all, Family businesses can have an actual have a pretty low cost of capital. If you think about it, if I'm if I'm a multi generational family business, all I'm doing is generation after generation, I'm passing the equity down. I'm never actually buying it out, and so I have to I pay some dividends to keep people happy. But think of the low cost of the capital that actually comes, and compare that to what you would have to do um, in a bank loan or a private equity investment. The second thing is that there's a limited marketplace for shares, so it's actually easier to get that commitment. There's some restriction on who can buy. Um, there's some discounts when people want to. So there's a bent, you know, a, a natural way for family members to be be sort of put into a into a position, a, a, into a position of staying for the long term. Now you don't want to play that too far. You don't want people to feel stuck. I'll talk about that in a moment. Um, lastly, family businesses tend to have a very conservative approach to finances. So they're actually playing for the long term. When it's your when it's your money, your capital, you're not going to take those crazy level of levels of risk. Um, and that allows family businesses to kind of keep the you know, family businesses tend to have much less debt than public companies and other businesses, private equity firms. And over the long term, that allows them um, to make decisions that are focusing on what's creating long term value, not just you know, paying back our our investors over a several year period. So um, a, a former colleague of mine and some other folks did some studies that basically said, you know, across business cycles, um, family businesses do better. Their, their performance level is higher. There's a lot of data to support that. Um, and again, an example from a family business leader, she said, we control our own destiny. We are just as greedy as anyone else out there. I love this. But we are long term greedy rather than looking to make a quarterly you know, win. We don't make decisions. We make decisions based upon what is in the long term interest of the company. OK, so how do you how do you sustain that committed capital? Well, first of all, make sure that you're clear in defining 
what your goals are as the owners of the business and make sure those are things that are connected to long-term performance. So, you know, I've seen some family businesses that are focusing on the long-term, but they're measuring things that like earnings, you know, and, and year to year. Well, no, that can be helpful. One thing to keep an eye on, but make sure you're really focusing on the things that are going to pay off over the long term. Like how do we increase the valuation over a 10 year period and make sure that your, your incentive structures for your employees are aligned around that. Um, and really kind of cultivate. So, you know, part of this is about understanding the financials better, but also a lot of having committed capital is in going beyond the financial motivation of from a very young age, making clear to the owners, the next generation, the young generations, why they should care about this company. You know, the families that I see that are successful, they really focus on developing that emotional, psychological connection to the business before they ever talk about money and returns and those things. You also have to carefully manage dividends. This is one of the most important ways to kind of keep your capital committed. Um, if you if your dividends are too low and, and sort of not or non-existent, it makes the owners wonder if it's worth it to keep 99.9% of their wealth concentrated in an asset that pays nothing out. If you if their dividends are too high, then it can actually crowd out your ability to reinvest and keep the company going. Um, or I've seen very some some tough situations where families have actually borrowed to pay dividends. You won't don't want any part of that. Keeping a strong balance sheet that allow you know companies go out of business not because they lack revenue in general but, but because they can't pay their bills. Um, so family businesses that are successful keep a strong balance sheet. They keep cash. You know they don't have too much debt. Um, they are ready to be aggressive during tougher times. They tend to be buying other businesses when valuations are low rather than when they're relatively high. Uh, make sure that you have a handle on your estate planning liabilities. Um, if, if, if you live in a country that has an estate tax, as we certainly do here in the U.S. and some other places, um, if you don't manage that well, then you might have to take the company public even though it's not a goal. And then, as I said before, you want, com ca you want captive to be uh, sorry, you want capital to be committed, not captive, right? So you want to make sure if someone wants out for good reason, have a clearly defined exit mechanism so that they can they can find their way out of the company in, in a way that's beneficial all around. Okay, so that's the second one. Let's, the last piece of, of kind of capital I want to talk about is social capital and the value of reputation. And um, there's a kind of a, a well-cited quote, uh, you know, from an, from an economist uh, from the 70s, uh, Milton Freeman, who talked about the business of business is business, basically saying, you know, look, companies are about making money. And if you want to do good, uh, well, that's for that's for charity. Companies should focus on nothing other um, than doing than doing than making as much money as they can. And um, that was true. That, that that worked for a while. But increasingly, companies are expected to have a level of social responsibility to be good corporate citizens and stewards. And so. The imperative for, that all companies are facing is in a very crowded marketplace where you're competing with companies all over the world as opposed to just those in your like local geography, how do you foster a reputation that builds trust with customers and communities? And increasingly, people recognize that to prosper, every company has to show not only good financial performance, but also how it makes a positive contribution to society. Um, and there's some good data about the value of reputation, about how that how it allows your company to stick out from the crowd. Now, again, this is something that family businesses are are quite good at. You know, the re they care about the reputations, um, not just for some transactional reason, because but because your name is either literally or figuratively on the door. And so you've got 
this personal connection between the family and the community. I see this all the time with family businesses. They really feel like we're part of this community. When it does well, we do well. There's a natural connection. The second reason why there's an advantage is because things that are trade-offs between making more money and doing good are usually only trade-offs in the short run, not the long run. So, you know, for example, there's a family that I work with. Um, they they're in, in a manufacturing business. Um, you know, that that is by nature, you know, a, a polluter. Um, they've made they've decided to invest literally hundreds of millions of dollars in modern modernizing their equipment. And for them, it's not a question of whether that's a good financial motivation or a good sustainability motivation. It's actually both. It will both reduce the costs over the long term of their company, keeping them cost competitive. It will also reduce their emissions. And similarly, with investing in diversity and inclusion or education, all these things, it's hard to justify for next quarter or next year. It's easy to make the cases if you plan to be around for 20, 30, 100 years, it's easy to see why those investments will pay off. And then lastly, the, the family businesses just have these trusted relationships with customers, suppliers, that they're built over decades or even generations. And those can be incredibly valuable uh, to your company. So there's a, actually the Edelman, which is a PR firm, does a study of trust around the world. And one of the things that they find consistently is that people trust family businesses more. And not only are they willing to trust them more, um, uh, two-thirds are willing to pay more for products or services of family businesses. Um, and again, here's an example. We're able to build stronger trust with our customers as a family company. We have more social capital because of our history. Our name is one of our most important assets. So real value in that social capital. How do you keep that going? Well, first of all, you know, I, I've been part of a number of these discussions where people get into these debates between profitability and doing the right thing. And as I said, more often than not, these are, are false choices. You can actually do both as long as you think about the right time horizon, right? Instead of it being next year, five years, 10 years, pick a number, it will, most of those things will pay off over the long term. The second thing is to really be thoughtful about your family's reputation in the community. You have to, you know, any one person can either build your reputation or destroy your reputation. Um, and it's important to actually create some policies to avoid some damaging publicity. And especially in today's day and age, I know families that are very serious about their reputation have developed very strong social media policies to make sure, okay, don't post a picture of yourself going on the corporate jet and like put it on, put it on Instagram because then people will sort of give, you know, get that, believe that's kind of who we are as a family. Make sure, as I said, there are these really valuable relationships that happen as part of, uh, of building up a business over time. As you go from generation to generation, have a real plan and effort to hand off those key relationships. So, you know, you've got this customer relationships that you've spent years cultivating. Are you handing that off to someone in the next generation? Is it, and oftentimes it's sort of, you know, when, when both are family businesses, the next generation is getting to know each other across those businesses. Um, pay attention to the, you know, it's easier than ever for, for customers to, uh, to have a protest to sort of, to push back. It's a two, it's much more of a two way dialogue between customers and companies these days. Um, I work with a, a company in Southeast Asia, um, and the CEO is actually copied on all customer complaints that come into the business. And the, the reason for that is it sounds like a lot of work for him, but he says, look, 
in the old days, they're in the consumer products business. When, when someone saw a defective product, they'd send us a letter. Now they take out their phone, they snap a picture, upload it to Facebook or wherever, and now we've got a PR crisis on our hands. So we have to proactively manage those things, get out ahead of them. And then lastly, consider because family brands can be so valuable, really think about whether you should either whether you should connect the company's brand to the family. There's sometimes, especially for safety reasons, when it's valuable to create distance. Uh, but for example, there's a winemaker in the UK called Hardy's, and they found that highlighting when they did, you know, they thought they did a whole rebranding exercise. What they found when doing the research was that highlighting the family history, heritage, resonated by far the most with consumers. And, and maybe it's just because I pay attention to it. I've seen so many businesses that are now branding themselves, wrapping them around themselves around their familyness, and, and there's a reason for that. So really think about if that's a good thing for your company. Okay, so we're going to switch gears and talk a little bit about, we've talked about resources, we're going to talk about decisions, and now I'm going to talk about the, the sort of the operational management decisions. And again, the priority before, you know, like the previous, I'll call it previous century, just to keep it simple, was managing all this complexity. You know, when I went to business school back in the in the early 90s, we talked a lot about matrix organizations and things like that. Um, now, the priority is all about speed. But how do you deal with and manage an environment that's shifting faster than ever? So the strategic imperative, and you'll hear this, you know, across you know, business schools, academics, those are focusing on management decisions. It's all about being flexible, adaptable, and decisive as market conditions are changing. And um, for, from a colleague of mine, the research that he's done has talked about speed is becoming more important than size, and the basis of competition is shifting from scale to pace or tempo. So speed kills, right? Speed kills uh, scale in many cases. And so the priority is not to have these large, complicated bureaucratic organizations, but to really shorten the distance between the ultimate decision makers and those who are on the front lines, who know what's going on, who are talking to customers, talking to suppliers, know what's going on in the market. And again, family ownership brings a huge advantage here. Um, family businesses tend to have flatter structures, fewer layers, more direct connection. Um, they can commit to big bets faster than competitors. Family businesses are not always faster at making decisions, but for bit, you can make the big bet the company decisions because the owners are sitting in the room. They're close by. We can get their approval fast as opposed to you know, a board of a public company that's focusing more on managing uh, their downside risk, right? Because it's someone else's money that I'm being held accountable for. It's my money. If I want to make a big bet, I can do it. They also, because I was talking to one family business leader about this, he said, you know, I compete against a public company and a private equity fund. And my peers, he was the CEO of the business, they spend a lot of time managing their investors. One has to, you know, talk to these 20-year-old analysts or 25-year-old analysts on, on calls every quarter. They spend a lot of time managing that. The private equity one, he has to really focusing on managing the private equity firm, making sure they're happy with everything's going. He said, I don't do those things. I focus on meeting customers. I see myself as the chief sales officer of this company. And again, family firms have, have a lot of flexibility compared to large organizations. Managers, you know, there's such a benefit of being only accountable to yourself. Um, it can go wrong because you don't have anyone else holding you accountable, but there's such a potential benefit uh, of being responsible only internally. Um, and again, a quote from a company, no matter how large, this is a multi-billion dollar company, no matter how large we grow, I have a flat organization and deep relationships with managers. That means that any of them can get to me for a decision. 
Speed of response is becoming more and more crucial, and we are able to put large projects to work quickly. So how do you sustain this ability for pace? Well, first of all, you have to sort of be clear about decision-making and decision authorities. Make sure you actually have effective delegation as the organization grows. Family businesses tend to be much more hub and spoke than org charts. So instead of like the classic boxes and lines that you might have on your org chart, the reality of most family businesses is that information comes in and decision-making comes out. And that can be very beneficial up to a certain point where there's an over-centralization of power and you have to figure out how do I delegate decision-making down to people lower in the organization so that not every decision is coming up. But you want to find those areas as a leader where you can make the biggest difference in the company's success and stay connected to those. Don't delegate those. So there's a, a retail company in Brazil, a large business that, that I worked with, and the CEO said, I, a family member CEO, I, he said, I still make every final call on every new store that we develop. And the reason is because if we pick the right location and the right format, I know we have the right the people that can run it well. And if we make those decisions badly, no one can, can run it well to make it profitable. I've been doing this for 30 years. I know street corners and sizes better than anyone else in the industry. So that's I delegate lots of stuff. I keep my eye on that prize all the time. Make sure that you invest time to create alignment between the owners and management. So that's really one of the important uh, elements of going fast is actually to slow down first and make sure that everyone's clear on what are our goals, what are the rules of the game. And once I'm clear on those, then I can go much more quickly um, and make decisions faster. Making sure that your company, you know, it's very natural in a family business. Um, in fact, it's the most common organizational structure in a family business to have silos. I'm in charge of this business. You're in charge of that business. I'm in charge or I'm in charge of marketing. You're in charge of finance. And to some extent, that's a healthy way to create space uh, within a fam family business. But where I've seen that go wrong is where the company actually gets siloed around customers. So I was talking to one family business and they said, you know, we would have a set of customers and they'd get so confused because they'd have one person come in selling these products. And then a week later, someone from the same company selling you know different set of products. They said, I just want to talk to, to one person about the range of things that you have to sell. Um, and then lastly, you know, building loyalty to the organization rather than to specific assets. Businesses are going to come and go. You know, if you look at the family businesses that have been around for you know, 50 years, 100 years or longer, for the most part, they really say that we're in business, not a particular business. The business changes over time. And we want to build loyalty to our people, to our mission, to our objectives, less so to a particular business or to a particular way of doing things because those things are always gonna to need to be reinvented. The pace of change is probably faster than it's ever been, but change has always been there. If, if, you're, if you were, you know, at some point you were in, a, in the business of selling, you know, uh, buggies or horse and buggies, that, that business went away for the most part. Okay, the last potential um, you know, source of advantage is about governance. Um, and when public companies came around, the, the goal was to actually take power away from the owners and give the managers the ability uh, to make decisions, right? And that, you know, in some ways is quite successful. As I'll talk about in some ways, I think it's been a real failure. Um, the priority now is making sure that the owners are sufficiently engaged in the company to make sure that the managers are actually pursuing things that are in their interest. And that's the imperative that all businesses are kind of focusing. That's called, econ economists call this the principal agent problem. Um, the principal is the one who owns it. 
The agent is the one, the manager, the agent's the manager acting on their behalf. And the interests of the principal and the agent aren't always in line. And when that's true, the agent, the the management team is there day to day. The owners aren't necessarily there all the time. So the the managers have more access to information. They're able to manipulate things in worst case scenario to get their to get their their benefits. And you actually see this happening um, where, you know, when we look at executive compensation for public companies, especially in places like uh, the U.S., um, it's gotten out of control um, or scandals. You know, and the reason in part is because um, managers actually have too much power. There, there's not an ability of the owners to actually provide any real check on the behavior of, uh, of the management team. Now, family businesses, this is a different kind of problem. There are fewer owners, you know, even if there's 200, you know, in some families, um, it's still a group that you could get together if you had to. They also care about that business. If I, if I own a port, if I'm an investor in a, in a mutual fund, um, I own hundreds, maybe thousands of companies. I can't possibly focus on any of them. But because as a family business owner, I own one uh, and most of my wealth is wrapped up into it, the golden goose, I'm going to care a lot more about that success. I'm just naturally going to pay more attention to it. And then lastly, oftentimes there's no distinction between the owners and managers because they're the same people. The owners are actually managing the business. And so the principals are the agents. The problem goes away. Um, and so, again, sort of the, some of the research points to the natural governance advantage that comes with being a private company over a public company. And this, I think, also applies to public companies that are controlled by a family. You still have that, that advantage. Um, and there's actually research that points to um, better you know, executive pay decisions, not so astronomical pay packages and things like that. And this is a quote from, again, another family business um, owner said, you know, it's our money. It's our legacy. You know, and realizing, you know, instead of just sort of kowtowing to management, we need to be clear that they're that and insist that they're focused on our priorities. And that's exactly what that ownership group did. OK, so how do you activate that? One of a colleague and I published a book with Harvard Business Review earlier this year. One of the things we talk about is the different rooms that are part of governance. And, and one of the one of them we call the owner room, which is the place where the owners actually have to play an important role in governance. Um, and there needs to be a space where as the business grows, not, I'm not talking about when there's a founder, maybe even like two or three siblings, but as the business grows and the family grows, um, there needs to be a space where the owners can actually do their work to do their job of providing oversight over the business. And the role of the owners is not to run the company, um, it's to set objectives, it's to hire board members, develop policies, things like that. Um, in particular, the owners need to pay a lot of attention to this decision about how much of your profits do you distribute out to the owners versus reinvest. That's one of the most critical levers to creating discipline on management. You want to make sure that you know that, that managers have enough capital uh, to run the business, um, but also that there is a sense that capital is scarce and has value. And that the way that you do that is by creating um, this discipline. Um, also making sure that there's a direct line. You know, if especially this is true for especially for companies where the owners are not running it anymore. You still want to make sure that you've got sort of some family members that are part of the business, even if they're not the CEO, and making sure that you've got those relationships so they know who you are um, and can come to you if they have questions. Uh, it's really important to have a dashboard. You know, how do we define success uh, for this company as owners? Is it, you know, what metrics, financial metrics, non-financial metrics, employee engagement metrics? How, what does success mean and how do we measure it? How do we make sure that incentives are aligned 
with those goals. And then lastly, you know, ownership is a profession. It's something that is not taught much in business school, but anyone can learn to be an effective owner. Um, and that's true for everything, whether you have an MBA um, or whether you're an artist or have no interest or background in business. I really believe with the right focus, anyone can be an effective owner, but the family has to really cultivate that um, over time. Okay, so what does all this mean for family business? So I'm not saying that family companies should never go public or look for private equity. There are still industries that demand serious capital investment to survive, things like airlines. And there can be, very, and I've seen a lot of companies that go hybrid, where it's a public company, but the family maintains control. And that can actually, in some cases, get you the best of both worlds. You get an outside capital, you get some of the market pressure for good governance, but you still have the ability to really chart your course. And then, of course, businesses evolve and change. So it might be very smart to do an IPO of one company and then reinvest in other areas. And I would say, you know, what I, you know, these advantages I've talked about, as I said at the beginning, they're all latent. They have to be developed and sustained. And if you're not willing as a family ownership group to do the work to sustain your advantage, then you should seriously consider going public or selling because family ownership brings disadvantages as well. Uh, you know, lack of access to capital, some difficulty with hiring people that want, you know, want ownership, um, family, you know, disagreements that, you know, the work that comes with being you know, part of a family business, there are downsides too. So if you don't want to do the work to sustain these advantages, um, you're going to, might be in for some tough sledding. But my broader point is if you're willing to do the work, then you don't need to go public, uh, to compete in most industries. Uh, you know, and, and I don't just mean to sort of survive, but I, th I mean to compete on the highest stage. Some of the most successful companies, leaders in their industry these days are family owned. And they would, they would talk to you about how they th actually think of family ownership, private ownership as a competitive weapon. And I believe that some, given some of these trends we've talked about, that they actually might be better positioned for long-term success by staying in the family's hands. So just a few final thoughts and then would love to take some questions and discussion. I know in family business conferences and, and seminars, there's a lot of focus on the negative, the, the three generation rule and things like that, which well, a topic for another time, I think all that's nonsense. But rather than believing your family business is somehow doomed to failure, realize that it has the potential to build a competitive advantage and a sustainable one in this economy. Their dangers are real. You're gonna have to make some changes. You'll have to adapt, um, but you can succeed despite the challenges that we all know come with family ownership. And in fact, with a focus on the right areas, I've seen this, family businesses can succeed beyond any others. And the reason why you know I do this work and why I love this work is because I think that's good news, not just for the owners of family businesses, um, but for society as well. Family businesses, the data clearly shows they, they're better employers, um, they're more committed members of their communities, um, and in overall just sort of, you know, they care more about something beyond the financial, the bottom line. And that's why I really believe at their full potential, family businesses actually represent capitalism at its best. And that's exactly what our societies need right now is companies that are able to not make a hard choice between doing the right thing um, and making money, but those who understand that over the long term, those two things, for the most part, uh, point you in the same direction and they're able to make decisions 
um, that really sustain both. So I'll stop there. Um, if anyone would like to, after this conversation, follow up, you can find me at josh at banyan.global um, or on LinkedIn. And um, I'm, my next project is actually going to be you know, focusing and building out this work that I'm talking about. Always delighted to talk, hear examples, hear stories. Uh, please do find me if you'd like to talk more about it. So um, with that, I'd be delighted uh, to see if there are any questions or comments. Thank you so, so much, Josh, for such a meaty presentation and um, so much um, generosity on your knowledge sharing. We do have um, a couple of comments and questions. Um, first up is from Kumbi. Um, he's asking, what is the si single most important factor that you think makes family businesses succeed most? Yeah, I mean, I think if I had to boil it down to one thing, I think it's the ability to think over the long term, to play basically to play a different game. You know, if you're a family business, you don't have to play the same game as everyone else. You can play a different one and you get to invent your own rules. And I think that flexibility and freedom, if you really take advantage of it, is such an incredible, you know, such an incredible thing. In my, my class, one of the speakers I have come is from a, a large um, shoe company um, and family owned company. And he basically talks about how ev everything that they do is informed by this long-term perspective. And it allows them, he said, you know, we have a 10 year plan to get ourselves into a new business, into a new part of this sector. I could never in a million years sell a 10 year plan in a public company, but because we're a private company and family owned 10 year plan. Sure. Let's go for it. We we're going to be here in 10 years. Um, we're willing to make that investment. Thank you for that, um, Josh. Um, you spoke a lot about the relative advantages of family firms compared to non-family firms. Um, yes. What about the inherent disadvantages and how can families seek to mitigate or overcome these? Great question. I, I think the single biggest disadvantage is access to capital. And um, in some businesses, that's a huge deal. Um, and... You know, how do you overcome that? Well, you, you know, I think there you can go, as I said, you can go partially public. You can you can sort of raise outside money, but still retain retain control. Um, you can partner with a private equity firm. Um, there, there are ways you, know, you can you can borrow. There are ways to overcome that. But um, but for the most part, I would say if you're in a business that's all about who has the most resources, who can lose the most money. Right. If you think about things like Amazon um, or Google or Facebook. They were able to lose, or Uber, <laughs> they're able to lose an extraordinary amount of other people's money before ever making a dime. And I guess my, I guess my point is there are, those are, those are examples where family businesses are going to struggle. The good news is there aren't that many of those. Those are the ones that we read about that are talked about. Everyone wants to talk about Google and Facebook and Uber and so on. They get probably 90% of the attention in the press. But they're a small slice of the actual number of companies. So that's that's the biggest one. And of course, the other the other the other risk is that if the family is not aligned, is not focused on the long term, is trying to extract money from the business, uh, all those kinds of things, those that can be a huge disadvantage. There's nothing that sinks a company faster than a disagreement among the owners. You know, in my part of the world, there's this um, amazing grocery store chain called Market Basket, um, and it almost went out of business in a matter of months because the owners were in a conflict with each other. There's actually a great movie about it called We the People, which I highly recommend. 
because it goes into basically talking about this is caught this incredible company that almost you know grocery store with no food on the shelves right because of this conflict among the owners so i think those are the things that i'd probably highlight to be the, the biggest downsides and risks uh, that come with family ownership right and the next question is as family businesses evolve from being motivated by profit on by profit only to one of social responsibility. What challenges do you envisage envisage that they will encounter and how will they overcome these challenges? Yeah, it's a great question. And and look, I think partly, uh, and I see this happening with families that I work with, you know, family businesses have, I would say, the most part are, are motivated by values and have been for, you know, there are, you know, in the early generation, especially the first generation, if you ask a, if you ask most founders why they started the business, it's because they'll say, I had to, I, I needed to create a living for my family. I needed to create jobs for my family members. Um, but over to, once you get above that sort of, we're going to make payroll, we're going to survive, you know, it starts to become about something else, about a legacy, uh, about it, the employees of the business taking care of them, about the community. And I think what we're seeing is a shift towards a, a different set of values, values about environmental sustainability, about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, you know, thing, you know, companies are being judged that way, not just by the outside world, uh, but by the owners, especially the younger generation of owners who want to feel proud of a business. And to feel proud, they want to believe um, that their companies are doing something beneficial. So what are the challenges to that? Um, I don't think the challenge is actually doing it for the most part. Honestly, I really don't believe it because I've seen so many examples of being able to invest in diversity and inclusion or sustain environmental sustainability, things that actually, as I said, over that long-term time horizon, they pay off. You can actually motivate. You can actually create that bottom line. So one of the things to work on is to get yourself out of this either or thinking and get yourself more into and thinking. Like how do we do both of these things at the same time, challenge yourselves, challenge your management teams to find opportunities to do good and to make money at the same time. A big challenge I found is that companies are actually pretty good at doing this stuff because they tend to have you know strong values. They're not always so good at communicating it and measuring it. And so those, I think, are some of the challenges. How do we actually demonstrate to the next generation that what we're doing as a company is actually beneficial. We're creating great jobs. We are um, creating opportunities for the, you know, in the community. Um, we're, we're, we're contributing to the environment. We're, we're providing a level of safety, even if we're in extractive industries, you know, we're in oil and gas. But if we didn't do it this way, it, you know, our business practices are so much better than some other company that would just be out there to make a buck and, and leave town, right? Um, so a lot of it's going to be in the measurement of those things and in the communication and in the challenging to say, we can do this. We have to do this. If we want to be around in 100 years from now, we can't have an environment that is completely destroyed. Um, we can't have a workforce uh, that doesn't have a level of educational understanding to, to support our business. Excellent answer. How can family businesses start planning with a future perspective as opposed to a now focus? You've mentioned... Um, family businesses do have a longer term horizon and know that we'll be in business in 10, 10 years time from now, but they don't necessarily start planning, succession planning, family governance, yeah. you know, you know um, with a long horizon. So how, how can they start planning with a future perspective as opposed to a now focus? And how can this be beneficial? 
Well, I think part of the how you do it is to, is to make the case that it's beneficial. And, you know, look, I think some of the hardest conversations to have are with people who are in those positions of power currently who like having them, who like the influence, like having the authority. They don't necessarily want to step back. It's a big part of their identity. I think helping them to understand that they are invested, you know, they may have spent their entire life, most of it, focusing on this business. And if you want it to last and succeed, then this is the work that's required. You have to be able to position it for for long-term success. You have to think about succession planning, not just the who's the next CEO, but how do we hand off the right relationships from one generation to the next? How do we have the right broader talent pool for this company to take it and be successful. So one one thing that I think is really helpful is to actually make the case of what what's the what's the why? What will happen if we don't um, you know think ahead, think long term, plan for the future. The other thing, the other tactic that I found to be quite helpful uh, is what I call working backwards, which is basically it's really hard to start a conversation and say, okay, you're gonna step down and then we're gonna step up and you know, I know that you like being the CEO, but it's time for you to start thinking about leaving. Um, those conversations uh, don't tend to go that well. So instead, what you can do is say, okay, we're not going to change anything. Let's just, let's just, for this conversation, we're going to freeze everything exactly as it is. Let's talk about where we need to be in 10 years' time when you are retired, when you're no longer part of this picture, right? So take, take that kind of off the table or maybe 20 years, pick a number, right? And then you say, okay, how will we do things then? And we want your guidance, you know, be part of that conversation. The next generation leads it, but with sort of guidance from the current generation, how, what's our governance structure going to look like? You know, who's going to be leading this company? How are we going to make decisions? We know it's going to be different. How is it going to look? And that has two benefits if you're able to do that. First of all, it gets the conversation moving. And so when that person actually is no longer in power, you have a plan. You've all agreed. You can just get to work instead of spending the first time any of your years, not only grieving and dealing with the loss, but deciding how you actually want to work things together. The second benefit I found is that once the current generation actually sees the plan, sometimes it helps them to start to take a step back or to take steps in that direction. Um, so it's, you know, those are, those are some things I've found that can sometimes be helpful. Thank you, Josh. As our last question for this session, I'd like to ask, as families seek to increase globalization, and as we've seen with COVID-19, the world has gotten smaller and smaller, and yeah. we've become more of the global village that we've always been talking about. Yes. And as these families seek to engage in cross-border business activities, and uh, what sh- should they be thinking about strategically? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, and it's interesting. I do wonder if um, COVID will actually in some way pull us in the opposite direction to some extent. I think I see some businesses that realize through COVID their vulnerability of having supply chains that go from, you know, from Asia to North America or the other way around. So, you know, I, I guess the first question I would ask you know, as a business is to say, where are the trends going? And, um, you know, maybe outsourcing, you know, either is your is your advantage or has been a part of your business. Is that going to change? But if it is, if your if your business is truly going to continue going down uh, the position of being global, um, I think increasingly businesses really need to understand what are we really good at and focus there. You know, I, one of the families I work with is in the 
in the you know, nutrition business and they're still manufacturing their products, even though they're not that great at manufacturing. They could find someone else to do that. Um, they're really good at marketing. And, and these days, it's really about you don't have to be an end to end company. That's the way things were before. You had to do everything yourself. Like Ford Motor Company used to actually graze sheep for the wool that went into their into their uh, seat covers, right? Like, so you actually had to control the entire value chain. And now you don't, you can really pick your spots. So what are you really good at? Um, those things you insource, you develop your capabilities. What are the things that you can afford to outsource or partner? So that's, that's one thing um, that, that I would really focus on. The other thing is really trying to build up your network. And, and here I would really encourage people to get connected to communities other family business communities, because you have this natural affinity for each other. Um, there's this one family business that, that, um, um, that I know that they're, they're in the clothing business and most of their suppliers, um, are, are other family businesses. And they're able, even though they're not the biggest company, they're able to get great, you know, great deals, um, great merchandise because they've built those, 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 those trusted relationships over generations. And so what I would say is really think about your network. How can you leverage your network uh, to go into new markets? Um, how can you expand your network? Go to, how do you go to family business conferences? How do you, how do you sort of broaden that so that you can build this personal connection, these trusted relationships that are your advantage compared to some large company that can just afford to spend money at will? Thank you so much, Josh. This has been a really, really insightful session. Um, should anyone wish to get hold of you, how best can they reach you? So you can email me at josh at banyan, B-A-N-Y-E-N dot global, or you can find me um, on LinkedIn and um, either I'm del always delighted to, to have conversations with folks. So Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank everyone. you for having me. Yeah, Best of luck with the rest of the conference. Take Thank care. You. Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye.